We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Check number 20. Technocratic democracy. Government designs for action shall be disciplined through their vetting. So you may remember designs for action is a term we're using rather than decisions or policy making. Yes, after the shock of, of the 150 quote-unquote decisions per, per ministry per week. Yeah. Yes, so we'll just, let's break this down into its parts. So we've got the technocratic democracy. Now, you're not talking about a mastermind ruling the earth. You're talking about people with technical skill. Yeah, so there's been, you know, the takeover of the technocrats. So, you know, the technocrats being sent into Greece to run the country. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is using knowledge, expertise, specialisms in their right place, but within a democratic context so that we're harnessing, for goodness sake, we need to harness all of this expertise, including that of people on the ground, Mm. but not give it a free reign and say, fine, off you go, you decide. It's within a democratic structure. So in some ways, this is like a design authority, for example, or in other bodies. But the important thing is that people with the sufficient experience, technical understanding, are at the table, as it were, when things are being talked about. And also those tables are run in such a way that knowledge and learning is coming to the table equally. There aren't dominant voices or dominant politics or politicians fixing what's coming out of that. But the forum is properly run. And in terms of the discipline side of things, we're not talking about this vetting being on a casual consultative basis. We're talking about, it's a bit like this kind of separation of powers, the, the fourth separation of powers, that this, these are people who have sway over these decisions or designs for actions, we prefer to call them, and can exercise some degree of, of veto. A government, if it's so minded, particularly in the UK, can do what it wants. Mm. And our system of governing is saying, no. That's really not a very good idea. Mm. So, I mean, there are checks and balances on uh, laws going through Parliament at present, on some other decisions, but few. 
you do get scrutiny, external scrutiny of the press, of the public, which may or may not filter through eventually after a huge delay. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as, as a rule and as a way of thinking and operating, the notion that we should always be subjecting any design for action to a process of vetting is what we're trying to establish here. I mean, the reason we're trying to establish it is because we'll get better designs for action out um, rather than the sort of random hodgepodge which uh, typically emerges with people coming up with huge changes, for example, to the welfare system. And then those huge changes actually not working, essentially, Mm. or huge changes to the school system or the health system and those changes not working. But I think a lot of people probably presume that such a vetting process does occur at a deeper level than it really happens. You know, that this kind of thing is... So surely, you know, surely this is government, this is a first world country. Surely there's somebody making sure that this stuff works. And yet over and over again, as we've said before, we're looking at, you know, yes, Prime Minister or, or the thick of it, or a much more chaotic and PR-based process yeah. than one would like to imagine. Yeah, And I think I you mean, said in the book, there's actually nothing in the government systems to ensure that, that learning is applied, that things are going to improve. It's much more kind of random and, and opinionated. Yeah. Oh, opinionated, ideology-based, prejudice-based, pressure on ministers, you must do something. Have you made a policy announcement this week, an, an initiative in the press, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's all headlines. There's no actuality to it. That's politics, I'm afraid. You know, they, they think that if there's some bloody great debate and, and adversarial arguments and then pull a rabbit out the hat, that's fine. Off we go. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, Maybe. that's the conjuring trick and, and the pantomime. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it may be that somewhere hidden in the bowels, a civil servant may have written a paper that says this can't be done. There's no how attached to this. It's just not going to work. It may be that there's some analysis somewhere that shows how it can be done. But that can all get discarded. By and large, it does as the the machine sort of focuses on, okay, the new law, the new regulation. Well, yeah, with regards to the machine, I mean, there is a a sort of systemic element to this because uh, I noticed on the subject of evaluation, you mentioned that evaluations in general are are geared towards defending the machine or the system rather than really challenging the system. The system is that you do an evaluation, at least this is how I understood it. The system is you get the evaluation person and they do the evaluation. That goes onto a pile of paper somewhere and get sort of put through the, the existing system without really challenging it. Yeah, and I mean, evaluations are done from time to time, and they may even be done by relatively independent people, but they are almost exclusively paid for by the department or the politicians that have pushed the policy out in the first place. So there's a conflict of interest there for a kickoff. And then secondly, the way in which the evaluations are done are within a particular context of the thing that has occurred. 
And so and, it's and, usually yeah. in response to sort of minor crisis rather than being well, a, a kind it, of an ongoing process. In aid fund projects, it tends to be an ongoing process. And some of that learning, to be fair, does get fed back into the next project. Go and look at the aid programs now and go and look at where the money's going. Some of it is hitting hunger alleviation, for example, mm. and it, it is getting into people's bellies. Some of it is going into useful programs, but also it continues to be the case that a lot of that money gets creamed off because it gets creamed off by the people at the top. The people at the top have a vested interest in keeping creaming it off. Then what happens is the people at the top know bloody well that if they're no longer at the top, the chances are their successors may well launch an investigation and find them to be Mm. corrupt. And you're not talking about any one group of people. You're talking about an entire class across the system where this is the case. And and, And I suppose Kensington Borough Council would be possibly a a case in point to some extent in terms of their kind of use of cheap cladding on Grenfell Tower and all the, you know, all the warnings that came with that and all their rebuttal of warnings and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, it's okay to carry on. You know, it's okay to carry on building buildings that are going to kill people. Yes. At the extreme. I mean, it is that nutty. But look across the board. I mean, fishing and controls over fishing, which are simply not working at all. You know, we'll probably find that the next regulation on fishing is, you know, more inspectors, different size holes in trawler nets and and something else. Well, this is not going to work because it hasn't worked in the past. These decisions, designs for action, need vetting. And this is the principle that they do need vetting. You get the feedback at the other end, but you're trying to get more right, and you'll never get everything right, but you're trying to get more right when it goes into the pipe, if you like, yeah. rather than waiting for it to come out of the end of the pipe and then go. So this, the- this is not unlike a business plan, as it were, for each thing that, you know, if, if you're thinking of going to business, you know that whatever it is, 90% of businesses fail, is it in three years or five years or something like this? So you want to be part of that 10%. And in order to get it right, you really have to focus on the things that matter and get some sort of vetting process done. Yeah, it will help I mean, you to, to actually achieve the thing that you're setting out to achieve. There's a high chance of failure, but you don't want failure. Yeah, you're, you're trying to get it right. And in the corporate world, the commercial world, it's called due diligence. So if you're thinking of buying a company, there you are, you're going to buy up, I don't, I don't know, a shirt maker or a furniture maker or whatever it is. Yeah, You are required as part of the investment decision, and and we can think about every design for action in government as an investment decision, it's going to cost money. So within the commercial world, uh, due diligence. Now, what is due diligence? Well, first of all, you'll go and look at all of the numbers and the accounts and the capital and all the rest of it and look at the forecasts and really pick them apart. Crucially, you'll also go and talk to and preferably use and examine their products and their Mm. customers to get a grasp of whether this product is really working well out Mm. there. What's the competition coming down the road that may mean that, well, their prices have to drop or something is going to sort of wipe it out? 
and what's the potential. And this work is done as thoroughly as you can because you're likely to be putting a lot of money at risk. And indeed, there are notable cases. There's one going on in the courts at present over Hewlett-Packard's purchase of a company where they allege that the company was a software company that someone had filled the books or whatever it is mm. because it hasn't worked. But, I mean, we're talking $8 billion, uh, is at stake there, so it's a lot of money. $8 billion is also, for the company, a lot of jobs. Like, there's human elements to that $8 billion. A massive human element, but governments... You know, you think about HS2, I, I think what's the price take now? That's up to 70 billion. There's a lot of money, one way or another, separately or collectively, hanging off these investment decisions by yeah. government. And yet it's done in this cavalier manner. People well, and the, the cavalier manner is also, you know, it comes down to the thing we've talked about a lot, which is purpose. A yeah. company will have a purpose for buying another company or for merging yeah. with another company, sometimes for being able to lobby, but more often to do with aligned commercial or shared values or whatever. But you mentioned Norman Strauss before we started recording, and he has a few points that I thought would be worth just rehearsing now mm. in terms of if someone has a design, like in a normal pedestrian sense, a design for action, you have an idea, you know, a kid on a skateboard wants to jump off a ramp or whatever. They have the design to jump off the ramp. That's what they yeah. are aiming to do. Or mm. somebody who sees the problems of the welfare system wants an outcome at the end, wants to try and see if they can fix this. But over all of this, Norman Strauss has put this umbrella of ethos this is a, a meeting place of values and vision, that there is this vision of what's going to hang on the end of it all. Yeah. And I think he quoted Stafford Beer talking about the inside and now and the outside and then. So we're, we're inside our heads and our realities now and trying to get a picture of that and then presumably the outside and then as well. You know, won't it be great when we get all this stuff working together and we're all moving together in concert. You know, business has caught on to this for a long time, the value of vision. But in particular, with government, it's a question of trying to bring people on board. So on the one hand, there's the reconciling of opposing perspectives, which, of course, I mean, every society has opposing perspectives and different constituencies that, that need to be kind of brought together. So that's where ethos can draw that together. But also there's this question that we've mentioned before of the tiny top, the, the minimal bandwidth in government that can be massively broadened out if they can get everybody on board with this ethos. And the yeah. ethos, in a sense, is where the vetting comes into play because this is where the individual initiatives can be put through a process of due diligence, just like a business, and out the other side, you can get to a design for action, which is actually aligned to an ethos that people in general are on board with. So you have set up with Ray Eisen eight tests. I'll just give the headline now, and then you can get into some of them. So we've got the yeah. framing test, the purpose test, engagement and stakeholder test, the insider test, the other countries test, the systems thinking test, the capability test, and the value test. 
So, well, let's just start at the top. Well, let's start with, let's take framing and purpose together. So framing, here we are. We're having a look at a situation of concern, as we call it. Where are the boundaries drawn? And are they sufficiently wide? Take HS2. There we are. We need a high-speed railway. And 40 years ago, I think, undoubtedly, that would have been a good idea. But in a modern world, what are we talking about? And actually, if we drew the boundaries more widely and said it's not about moving people per se, but it's about connecting people Hmm. so that they can communicate, then you might turn around and say, oh, that's interesting because in this day and age, far more important is high-speed broadband, Hmm. HSB rather than HS2. And that if we thought about that whenever HS2 was put on the table, was it five years ago or started, uh, officially was on the table years Hmm. ago, if we'd drawn that boundary more widely and said, well, where do we want to spend the next 50 billion? And would it be better spent in terms of connecting people? Then I think we would have come up with a very different answer and we would have been, ironically, very much better prepared for lockdowns. Yes. And the need to communicate via high-speed broadband. We're between the framing and the purpose there, really, aren't we? Because in framing it in that way, then you're looking at the purpose of spending all this money and saying, well, you know, is that actually going to work for most people? You know, do most people want to get on a train? Maybe they don't. If you take purpose, this really came home to me. I was talking to the guy who was head of the constitution unit at UCL at the time, And they were evaluating a particular law. I can't remember what it was and its costs and benefits and all the rest of it and getting into quite some detail. He said the problem was in laws, and I don't know whether it's changed at all, that come before House of Parliament, it doesn't actually explicitly say what the purpose is. It says we're going to have a law about X or Y or Z but there's no purpose. And so, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? What's the point of all of these many and various things that spew out of government? If we say, and again, you're right in the sense we're combining framing and purpose, but if you say, well, schools, here we are, we want to improve schooling. Well, do we want to improve schooling for what reason? Do we want to improve schooling, you know, because we want more people to get five GCSE grade A to Cs? Or if we draw that frame more widely, do we want to think about the lack of effective vocational education and training in this country such that more people coming out of schools can get uh, technical jobs uh, rather than so many employers having to rely on properly vocationally educated and trained people that come from East Europe. If we do that, does that then mean that we improve those people's situations and that there are less tax negative people, more tax positive people, and those people's lives are better? Well, we're kind of anticipating all the way down to the systems thinking test, because what you're getting into, in fact, is engagement and stakeholder, which is the, the third test. 
you know, are these people's lives, for example, in the context of an education system, going to be improved? And what, indeed, what what do they want? What do they think they want? And what what is working in in their societies? Exactly. So has the experiment been developed from and with the cohort of citizens it is aimed at? What would improve their lot or change their behaviour in ways that will realise the experiment's purpose? Are the interests of all stakeholders at the table and does the stakeholding have to be built? I mean, this is where Engage, Deliberate, Decide comes in as well. So, I mean, if you think, you know, you're going to develop a welfare policy, well, the welfare policy needs to start in the families of those that the policies are aimed at, not from a desk in London. With a fishing policy starts on a fishing boat. It doesn't start with a pile of statistics in Brussels. Domestic violence policy needs to start with an understanding of the real situations of the people that are experiencing domestic violence and indeed with the people who are doing it. Adoption policies are another one which have gone on for years and years and years, you know, and and they keep making fiddles and twiddles and then overall... It doesn't really work that well. Well, so this is this is where an insider like, for example, Eileen Monroe, that spoke in the first series, who obviously knows child protection very well, has been instrumental in in revolutionising how child protection is done using systems thinking. She is able, to some extent, to speak for the stakeholders or to engage the stakeholders, but she herself is an insider, so she would be a part of that insider test. Exactly. And I mean, to take the most obvious one, the financial systems and banking and all of that, someone said to me, and I think this is pretty accurate, that the only people that really know how the financial systems work are people who are working in them. Mm. And actually, there are very few of them because they become so complicated. But a generalist outside that system trying to grasp how this thing works and what you can do about it and regulate it and control it in wider interests than just the bankers in like our interests and society's interests, you need to be an insider. And so much of what I did in terms of my work was to be able to get inside organisations and spend time in them and work out what the hell was really going on Mm. and how they really work. Because by and large, people don't. Things like service sampling, where managers work on the front lines of services that Eileen Munro mentioned. I remember Tessa Jow sleeping in some of the hostels for people with mental health issues. She would stay overnight and experience what people there were experiencing. Mm. Proper thorough consumer analysis, which really gets into the details of, you know, why on earth do people stay in relationships where they're getting hit on a regular basis? Um, And and in a sense, there is a reason. And presumably it's because of the confused morals and the history, the sense of perhaps love or dependency or... love dependency but also have a think about what the state offers Mm. well you know the offer is that we could criminalize the father of our children we could get the father into jail Mm. how do the kids feel about that we could even get the children taken into care Mm. and it's like oh 
Uh, good. I think I'll stay here and carry on getting hit. And that came across so powerfully in this consumer analysis that we did of domestic violence. And actually the state's offer as the alternative to getting hit was just was too weak. It was actually worse, potentially. Things have, in certain cases, improved since then. But those issues are still there in a big way. And until we really get into the heads and minds of the consumers through engagement and stakeholder tests, then we're going to continue to come up with SOPs in some of these very difficult areas. Well, and again, this is all so well laid out. We're skipping from one to the next with great segues. But uh, So we've done the first four tests, the, the framing mm. test, the purpose test, the engagement and stakeholder test, and the insider test. And then the next four, well, we're getting into the global learning engine, the, the other countries test, yeah. and then the systems so, thinking test, capability and value. So let's get into the other countries test. Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that on the one hand, context is very important, culture is very important, and homelessness, which we've mentioned before, is an issue throughout the world. You know, benefits are an issue throughout the world, health services schools, taxation system, blah, 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 blah. Well, this is where we came in on the global learning engine. How, you know, has uh, manufacturing of automobiles and of consumer electronics gone from a situation where if you got in a car in the 70s, your chances of getting out at the other end of your journey without the car breaking down were fairly remote to a situation now where actually you'd be very surprised if your car broke down. It's because the Japanese started it and then people piled in and learnt from the many and various and systemic ways in which the Japanese were building DVD players and cars. And that knowledge then spread around the world to the extent that if your mass manufacturing is not world class, you won't be in business. Now, you know, please tell me why that same does not apply to government. Again, to acknowledge progress in this field, there are the OECD that is trying to promulgate knowledge. Hmm. But there's nothing in any system of government that says you must go and look at how other countries are doing this and you must learn from that as a matter of course. This particularly came out when you were talking before about the Oxford Said Systems Management Competition where there were so many things that were, as you say, quite specific to the particular countries, whether it was Peru or Indonesia or whatever. And yet they all seem to have this global resonance that, you know, surely anyone who's actually working in those fields would have a lot to learn from other countries by virtue of the sheer volume of this activity that's going on. Well, homelessness, as we mentioned, fake news was coming out of Germany. Uh, menstruation and periods, I can't quite remember where that was coming from. Adolescent pregnancy in Peru. You might say, well, modern slavery in Papua New Guinea, that's a bit niche, isn't it? But actually, if you start to dig under the surface, then... I think, you know, you could look around and go, whew, that's pretty common. Plastic waste in a car in Ghana. These are common problems, you know, Mm. for goodness sake, can we not just go and see? There's a huge amount of effort and knowledge and experimentation, of course, has gone into... Well, that brings us into test number six, which is the systems thinking test. So what what do you mean by this 
as a test. I mean, the whole thing, in a sense, is about systems thinking, but you, you have a specific idea in terms of how you would test to design for action using systems thinking. So you're saying, well, well look, maybe smoking is an example to take where you're saying, okay, we want to do this. Now, are we looking at this systemically? Now, yes, that would bring us back to purpose. So what are we trying to do? Are we trying to stop people dying from smoking or are we trying to stop people dying overall? Because some of the experiences that people have gone from smoking to obesity and if you look at the line and well the costs and all the rest of it you know it's very equivalent so okay we're drawing the boundary more widely we're now looking at a situation where we want to reduce deaths in total you then say okay so how are we going to go about that well one of the ways as we've discussed is the taxation system we're just going to make more and more expensive well how does that affect people at the bottom end who their only pleasures are alcohol, smoking and illegal drugs. Is that okay? Actually, underlying the motivations for smoking and obesity can often be that they are drugs of solace. So people are not feeling that good about themselves. They're having bad lives. So thinking systemically, are we addressing that particular issue? I see. So well, one thing you're, you're driving at here is the root cause. You know, is, is smoking the root cause in this case, or is there another root cause? And how does it fit in? Like, how does smoking uh, look in, in context? As in, what is the context? And then how do we fit our purpose of beneficial and, change? And- into that. Yeah, and if you take something about biofuels, I think quite soon we're all going to have E10 petrol, as it's called. Currently, petrol has 5% ethanol, essentially alcohol, so plant-based fuel. It's going to 10%. That's a jolly good thing. It turns out that actually you do less miles to the gallon and you have less power in your car, but that's supposed to be balanced by the ethanol itself producing less CO2. So there's a sort of bit of a benefit there. It's not entirely clear how much benefit in relation to the cost and the uh, costs of transition. But you then say to yourself, okay, thinking systemically, where's this ethanol coming from? Well, you know, we're growing all these ethanol producing plants, jolly good, but we're chopping down forests in Mm. order to grow all of that. So then that CO2 is going up. It's not really joined up. People haven't sort of made the links between the different parts of what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, and there was a cry some years ago, ah, we must teach mathematics like they teach it in Shanghai. Right, that Um, was Michael Gove, wasn't it? Yeah, and that, first of all, ignored the cultural context, uh, which you need to, but but then it completely ignored all of the other factors that go into good teaching, mm. like the quality and training of teachers. And the purpose of teaching in terms of, is the purpose to have highly efficient mathematicians or to have happy, capable children? Or indeed both. And um, you've got the management regime. Mm. Well, the management regime coming out of government and Ofsted is very systematic and Mm. controlling and performance. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. So think systemically how the whole system that you're proposing in order to achieve the purpose that you set out 
is or isn't going to work. And that brings us on to the last two tests, the capability test and the value test. I think the capability test looks fairly self-explanatory insofar as it's, can this design for action, this intention to do something, deliver the purpose that it intends to deliver? Yeah, if you go back to last week where we talked about what, why, how, well, this is the how. And there was a guy, Michael Barber, who worked on the Prime Minister's delivery units uh, under Blair. And he said so often ministers would come up with something and you say to them, and it's still the case, you'd say to them, well, how is that going to get delivered? Hmm. And there'd be a bit of a deafening silence. You know, the thought was, well, we pass a law and then it'll happen. Well, you must be joking. Hmm. You know, we'll come up with a new policy and then it will work. And all the many links in the chain cascading out from the centre to... So I've been a bit hasty in in attempting to slur over it. Actually, this is almost the central test in terms of once you've decided on what it is you're going to do and why you're going to do it, this is the test that is actually, as we said before, a bit like a business plan, that that you're you're actually checking the feasibility of the whole thing. And indeed, the other tests might well fall under that. And so how is it going to be done? You know, we pass a law on litter, um, which I suppose in one sense has a fairly clear purpose. We want to reduce the amount of litter. Um, But if you set the how against we want to reduce the amount of litter, Mm. well, is it through a law? Do the police have the capacity to enforce that law, you know, brackets no they don't they're they're overwhelmed with laws and and Mm. other enforcement agencies as well so you know i'm terribly sorry lads it falls at the first hurdle um so if we're thinking about how well then let's go to another country's test and there they are in australia they did a public education campaign right that's Um, right we talked about this in series one didn't we Uh, yeah and the public education campaign in fact, I think we've talked about it in this series as well because we, we I saw that thing in, in St Albans Park, you know, don't be a tosser. Don't be a tosser, <laughs> yeah. So, so they're, they're, St Albans is learning from Australia, yes. I'm to say. Um, but alas, our government isn't. Yeah, so so how? I mean, it's bleeding obvious um, and uh, by and large doesn't get done. And if you think about the capabilities, hence the capability test, if you think about the capabilities in government, if you think about the origins, the traditions of understandings of the civil servants and the politicians, by and large, none of them have operational experience. Mm. None of them have that depth, that capability. And again, this brings us back to the systems thinking side of things, because as I think you've been promoting all the way through this series, the capability often exists at the place where the design is intended for, the people who need it will often be in an environment that already has the capability. Yeah, classically with Toyota, you know, if you want to know how to fit a back axle, then talk to the people who have been fitting back axles for the last five or ten years, and they'll tell you how to do it. So having attempted to slur over the capability test, I'm going to be a bit more cautious about slurring over the value test because I'm thinking that actually the value test is not only about um, the financial cost, that perhaps it's also to do with whether people will value it. Or am I wrong? Well, let's first of all deal with cost. What are the costs? But 
I'm not just interested in what are the costs to government because, you know, governments will chop costs and they'll chuck costs over the wall to us. The classic one is we're going to close a relatively small hospital Hmm. and because bigger hospitals, you know, more efficient, cheaper per head to run and all the rest of it, there actually is quite a limit, a serious limit to that notion, but let's leave that to one side. Okay, we're going to do that. Off we go. Oh, hang on. That means that everyone going to the hospital has to travel further. Um, It means that, obviously, if you're visiting people in hospital, which is important for their health and well-being, they're going to have to go further. We're going to have more days off from work because people are having to travel further in order to get their care. So in the cost equation, we need the costs to us, to the people of doing this, because at the end of the day, Government isn't about minimising its expenditure. It's about minimising total expenditure. The other side of that is the value. I mean, what is the value of this? And it may be in something which is not specifically numeric in terms of well-being, but it may well be that we can calculate. um, Indeed, going back to HS2, you can do a cost-benefit analysis, and those analyses have their limitations, but they are attempting to value the benefit Mm. of doing this. By the way, the cost-benefit analysis is majorly negative for HS2, but, you know, let's leave that one side for the minute and then again it's a hell of a discipline i mean that come up and they'll give some dodgy estimates i mean that's the other thing you know that if you're having separate vetting then dodgy estimates as with due diligence get found out Mm. this is governments doing their creative accounting and thinking oh yeah well we can shove uh, HS2 through at 20 billion when, when actually it's 50 and i think possibly even 90 billion that it's going to end up at Ideally, these eight tests are an eight-step process which yeah. a, a design for action is put through. I mean, is there anywhere in the world that you've seen anything like this? I mean, I know that we talked about Singapore and its decision trees yeah. before. Well, I was just pulling up a couple of examples. Yeah, I mean, there's three points I think I've made here, actually. One is that some systems of governing, that their ethos is such that they are more orientated towards getting the answer better, getting the answer, getting the design for action righter rather than wronger. And some of that is national characteristics. Some of it is the culture that pertains, the ethos that Mm. pertains within the system. And, you know, it's been there for years. And, well, why wouldn't you, for goodness sake? Our system... It comes back in part to the voting system, this adversarial system, where, great, we've won, we can do what we like, off we go, are completely antithetical to any of that, and we'll avoid it. But nevertheless, some look around and you'll see some systems that are better and work that way because isn't it a better way to work? Um, You're you're talking about countries like the usual suspects, like Switzerland, Switzerland, Finland, presumably. Denmark and the Singaporeans, you know, very orientated to initially motivated by the desire just to create 
a country and mm. create a functioning country, but then to create and it. You're really in, talking about after the Second World War, presumably. Yes, yes. Where, where yes. I, th- I think Singapore suffered pretty badly. It suffered pretty badly, and then it came to be a separate independent state under a guy called Lee Kuan Yew, who was accredited really with getting an awful lot right in terms of system of governing. I mean, he was also, he was a benign dictator. Mm. So being fined for dropping chewing gum might not appeal to too many of us. It might appeal to some, I suppose. Within the system of governing, he created, he and others, who were committed and motivating to creating this new state, which became... Mm. A central port. So they had um, a vision. They were obviously they had, excited they had, to get away from the past and into the future yeah, of Singapore. Yeah, exactly. And so there they have decision trees, which is a sort of similar process to the one we've laid out here. I just picked up that in New Zealand, they have what's called the Treasury's Living Standards Framework, which is a rare example of central government policy-making system where multiple measures of capital, so we're Mm. talking about natural capital, the environment, social, human capital, alongside the economic, have been built into the decisions that the Treasury take. That's Um, clever, yeah. That would often lead to very different decisions. And, yeah, you can look further and you'll find places around the world. But what you won't find, um, as um, Norman Strauss said, is anywhere where this is formally laid out and where there are powers and the powers that we propose in our book um, would lie first with the civil service to, if you like, train and school the system of governing in this way of working. So yes. each time a minister yeah. comes up, well, Minister, yeah, his almost have you filled in the form? <laughs> the first thing is framing. But then the second chamber would have power then to say, well, you know, we've gone through all this process. Now, does it pass these tests? And this is not about politics. We're not checking you politically. We're checking you technocratically. Yes. I mean, currently what most second chambers do, there's a political vet on a political vet. Well, I'd like a technical vet on a, on a, on a political Right, process. because a part of the general purpose is to take the punch and judy show of politics out of important things that one would like to see done right. Yeah. We yeah. have yet again surpassed ourselves in our surpassed ignorance ourselves. of timing. We are now getting into principle... Number 21 for next week. It's part of governments, but having gone through the way in which governments work, principle 21, everyone pays their taxes. Wow, what a, what a revolutionary concept. It's quite simple, isn't it?